This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Anne Patchett, frankly, needs no introduction. But I will remind you, she does have an orange prize. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer for the Dutch House. The new novel is Tom Lake, and it is fabulous. It is just fabulous. And thank you so much for making the time. We're so happy to see you. But I have a question, and I'm going to quote you for a second. What was the shred of an idea that started Tom Lake? The shred of an idea, which I had while I was writing The Dutch House, was just about a woman who got to the end of her life and was thinking about when she played Emily in Our Town in high school. That's the shred. But I've I've been really obsessed with Our Town since I was in high school. And it's a play that I read over and over again and have throughout my life and just wanted wanted to write about Our Town. Our town becomes more and more relevant the closer we get to our own death. Oh, without a doubt. And actually, you sent me back to reread it for the first time in a really long time. And it's wild to me how modern it is. I mean, this was written in 37, first staged in 38, as in 1938. And I had no memory of it being sort of as wild and smart because I was one of those high schoolers who was handed a copy and, you know, answered the questions that I had to answer and whatnot. But going back to it as an adult, it's pretty sublime, actually. It's also like the ultimate Buddhist text. You don't really need to go off on a retreat. Uh, Just meditate on our town for a while. And and therein lies the answer, my friends. There's also a little bit of Chekhov in this new novel. And a little bit of Sam Shepard. What's so interesting, people want to talk about about our town, and they want to talk about Chekhov and and the Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters. No one wants to talk about Sam Shepard. No, actually, I am that person. I would really like to talk about oh, Sam Shepard with you. <laughs> I love Sam Shepard's plays. I really do. And when Fool for Love popped up, I was like, okay, we've got Thornton Wilder in our town. We've got Chekhov in the Cherry Orchard, which not a direct parallel, but readers will understand. And I'm not going to spoil this sort of connection there beyond the fact that yes part of the book takes place in a cherry orchard on a farm in michigan but it's not if you're thinking oh no what check off what no it's not a direct lineage it's just it's wonderful to see all of these different bits of inspiration that come into this book i mean that's part of the fun of reading you there's always something cooking in the background yeah and i think that in that case it's also my bookseller heart I am always trying to turn people towards some other text that I love. And so, you know, to, to turn people to theater is is fantastic, especially if you're somebody like me. I don't go to theater. I live in Tennessee. And when I go to a big city and I have a free night, that's rare, I go to listen to music. I go to the opera or I go to the symphony. And so... You know, what I know about theater, I really know from reading, which is pathetic, but that's what I've got. When I first was really seriously getting ready to write this book, I hadn't started it, but I invited a group of random neighbors over to do a cold read of Our Town. I just, I gave everybody a part. I marked up the copies, bought a bunch of paperbacks, and I thought this would be the best book club to have a group of people come over and do a cold read of a play and then sit around and talk about it. It was so much fun. Do you actually have time for another book club? No, <laughs> I, mean... no I did it once. I did okay. it once. 
And I just thought this would be fantastic. It I is mean, a can, great idea. Yeah. Bring the neighbors over for, for Fool for Love. That will really throw things off. Lots of folks aren't necessarily prepared for Sam Shepard playwright versus Sam Shepard actor. Yeah. And I mean, he also had a very experimental period early, early on in his career. And I think people would really be surprised by some of that work. But I love the sort of mix of influences that you pulled. And part of this story, though, is set at a summer stock theater company in Michigan. And every time I see Traverse City, my first thought is Jim Harrison. So if I start mm, nice <laughs> bringing nice. in Jim Harrison, nice. you'll know why. But I mean, I can't read the words Traverse City without thinking of that man mm. and his beautiful, beautiful work. But Michigan, the people I get, and we'll get to the people, but I want I just want to start with place because Michigan is not what I expected. And I'm also, I'm a theater person because I have access to it. But I don't know a lot about sort of regional theater or summer stock or any of that. So can we kind of start there? Because I know you like homework. I know you like homework. And and I feel like there's a little homework here. <laughs> what I was just going to say is, well, neither do I. Where are <laughs> you? Where are you? I'm in New York right now, but oh, I, okay. I run back and forth between New York and L.A. Well, yeah, then you have access to everything. So I like setting books in places that I know a little bit. That's sort of the perfect window for my imagination. I will probably never write a book that is set in Nashville because I know it too well. And I would become too obsessed with, you know, what if I miss something or uh, But Northern Michigan, Traverse City, Petoskey is an area that I love. And I know moderately because my favorite bookstore is um, called McLean and Eakin in Petoskey, Michigan. And I went there for Bel Canto, so more than 20 years ago, became great friends with the owner, Julie Norcross. Her son, Matt Norcross, runs it now. I mean, I'm just, I'm deep in with those people. And then later, I made some very, very close friends in Traverse City. So I, I go up there, I see those people. Now, my friend in Traverse City is a woman named Erin Whiting. And Erin grew up on a cherry orchard. She went to Interlochen for high school, and then she founded an independent professional theater company in Traverse City called Parallel 45. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to set this book in Michigan. It's just got all the vibe that I want. And then fortunately, Erin was offered a really great job. She left the theater company, and the job turned out to be a total scam and disappeared two months later, and she was out of work. She couldn't go backwards. And I said, this is perfect. I'm going to hire you to do research about cherries and apples and theater. And Erin, just, she just saved my life. You know, I would send her a list of questions every week and she would answer them. I didn't know the difference between a swing and an understudy. Right. I didn't know what a summer stock schedule would be like, that you always open with the musical, that you know, it would have to be this kind of play in balance with that kind of play. The rehearsal schedule that you're rehearsing the next play while you're in a play at night. I didn't know any of that. And the things that I know about cherry trees would blow your mind. <laughs> well, I'm glad you know all of these things because I got to read Tom Lake. <laughs> I have to just to go back to the Summerstock thing for a second, yeah. though. Lara, our sort of narrator, 
who's really fabulous and very smart and very sly and not at all who I, I'm not even sure what I expected, but not a theater girl, but ends up being a theater kid. She is playing Emily in our town and she's been told she's going to play May in Fool for Love. And I'm sorry, I'm still laughing. I've known this for several weeks now and I'm still laughing when I think of this little girl from, and she is very young when we first were, as she's telling her story and as she's getting into the theater, she's very young. And here's this kid from a tiny town in New Hampshire who's playing two wildly divergent characters. And she's not the only one. There's another character who we meet who's understudying in both cabaret and our town. No, she's dancing in cabaret. Oh, I'm sorry, dancing in cabaret. Right. And she's understudying in our town in Full for Love. Yeah, it's like you know, you've got to work with who you've got. And that's that's what you do in Summerstock. Summerstocks feels like perfect territory for you, though. I mean, we get all of these people pulled in, as you do, and then they've got to figure it out. Right. Well, that's my thing, right? Confinement narrative. It's excellent. I I love I love a good confinement narrative. And while I never was an actress, and I certainly have never done any time in Summerstock, when I was in my twenties and thirties, I used to go to artists' colonies you know, Yado and McDowell and those places. And that was the energy that I was really drawing from, which is you're an artist, you're there to work, but it's also summer camp for adults. And you get in all sorts of crazy trouble and you do things you would never do at home. And a summer feels like eight years. I have heard some of those stories. And I assume that if those are the stories I'm hearing, all of the good stuff has been withheld. (laughs) I mean, my eyes get really big just thinking about it. Yeah. But you do some very cool stuff with time as well in this novel. It's very compressed in the present day. I mean, we're clearly home during the early days of lockdown. Three daughters have come home to the cherry farm. Lara's their mother. Their dad is Joe. And I didn't realize this until I was noodling around prepping for this show, but Emily is the oldest, Maisie, and then now. You have borrowed the names of the daughters of your first editor from Patron Saint of Liars, right? Am I right about that? Yes, yes, yes. It was just a fun thing to see. But I love these girls, even when Emily was driving me a tiny bit around the bend. As a teenage daughter will. Yes. And and having been a teenage daughter who drove some people around the bend. Yeah, right. It's just very funny to step back and read it as an adult and be like, oh, right. People, you know, people say to me, gosh, how do you write about kids? You don't have kids. How do you do that? I'm like, okay, I'm not an actress. I'm not a cherry farmer. I don't have children. But the kids are the easiest. Rotten teenage girls, man. Uh, We've all been there. We've all been there. (laughs) And we've seen every permutation throughout time of those girls. But this particular family, Lara and Joe and the girls... Did they sort of show up fully formed or were you working off of Lara and riffing off of her story and then other folks? Because I know you start knowing the ending of a novel that that I'm clear on. But when you're working backwards, how much of the cast do you have? I mean, they're a really great family. I cannot stress this enough. They are a really great, wonderful, loving, marvelous family that I think any one of us would be happy to hang out with, even when Emily was a teenager. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. And I, I feel like happy families get a short shrift in literature. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a challenge and happiness in general, mm-hmm. a challenge that I really work with because mm-hmm. 
I feel like the world is hard and a lot of really terrific books. I read books all the time that I think I don't actually want to hand this to a customer. Like I understand that this is brilliant, but I I don't want to say, you know, this is what you really need to read. How can you focus on what is happy and positive and still be realistic and still be writing literature? No, nobody shows up fully formed. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. I think about these people for years before I actually start to write the book. You know, I always think of myself as squinting at something at a great distance and then just really slowly moving towards it and thinking, what is it? Is that a bird? Is that an armadillo? Wait, no, that's a heroine. Hold on. I can't really see. Um, And so it just, it comes together in time, not in writing time, but in thinking time. And when I finally get it all together in my head is when I start. And I'll tell you something very strange about this book and about Laura and my decision to make her the narrator. The thing that made me put off starting this book for such a long time is I could not decide if Laura was the narrator or if Sebastian was the narrator. Oh, okay. And it would have been an entirely different book because their plot lines would really have only intersected in this one place. It wouldn't have been a worse book or a better book either way. It was just a fork in the road. And I had the hardest time choosing if I wanted to write the story of these two brothers or if I wanted to focus on Laura and Joe and the girls. And the reason at the end of the day that I made the decision to go with Laura was because in the Dutch house, that was narrated by Danny. That was a first person narrator and a guy. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I don't want to do this twice. Yeah, I get that. Her voice is so clear to me. And it's wild to me thinking that, you know, here's this. And Sebastian's a great character. And I would have read that as well. But this, yeah, I'm just thinking about how she tells the story. Yeah. Have you heard any of the audio book? Not yet, but I've heard that Meryl Streep narrates it. So I'm very excited for listeners. Unbelievable. Yeah. It is so good. Yeah. It seems really perfect. First person versus third, because the last two books have been written in the first person. That's what it is. Surprised me. That's what it is. It's first person versus third. That's that's did Commonwealth loosen things up for you when you sort of decided that you weren't going to shy away from using some material from your I'm not saying Commonwealth is like the most autobiographical thing ever, because if anyone has ever read your essays. You have gone very in-depth in your own life there. But switching to the first person, whether it's the Dutch House or Tom Lake, it seems like it freed you up in a way that some people might say, well, you're only in this person's head, right? That you don't quite have the exact landscape that you would in third person. And yet these books, both of them fly. I mean, the Dutch House and Tom Lake, they just really move in a different kind of way. Yeah, you are you are exactly right. So when I wrote Commonwealth, which was a very autobiographical novel, it was the kind of novel that a person should write as a first novel. And I wrote it as like, you know, my seventh or eighth or whatever it was novel. And I thought I had always said I would never write an autobiographical novel. So, okay, what else did I say I would never do? Mm -hmm. The last 
first person book I wrote was Taft and that came out in 1994. Right. So my first two books were first person. Mm-hmm. And and to me, third person, and especially the omniscient third, which I finally cracked at Bel Canto, was the Holy Grail. Once I finally figured out how to do that, I was like, oh, I'm never going back to first person. First person was kid stuff, not for other people. I don't feel that way at all as a reader, but as a writer, I just thought, okay, that's too easy. And I want to do things that are harder. So after I wrote Commonwealth and I thought, all right, I've written autobiographical fiction now. What else did I say I would never do? Well, okay, I said I'd never write a first person novel again. Let me give that a shot. And I made so many mistakes in the Dutch house and I ended up throwing it away and starting over again. And and I learned a lot, but I learned that there just there is a lot that's interesting in first person and playing with what other people don't know. Because if you have an omniscient third and you have the ability to go into everybody's head, you know what everybody's thinking. But in in that first person, and especially where Laura tells us at the beginning, I'm not telling them everything. <laughs> I'm only telling them part of everything, yeah. which is how we all function as humans. Right. You don't tell anybody everything. You shape your story person to person. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was really an interesting thing for me to, to deal with. One of the hardest things about being a novelist for me is a cell phone. How do you have narrative tension if every person has access to information and communication with one another all the time? So you've got to kind of hoist the narrative over the fence of the cell phone, Mm -hmm. just to make a sloppy metaphor there. But the serendipity that the reader gets to experience in Tom Lake is pretty spectacular. And watching these girls figure out who their mother is and their idea of what the story that we're unraveling. And I'm, yes, I'm being vague on purpose because this is going to air on pub date and I'm not ruining this book for anyone. (laughs) But watching these girls puzzle out their mother as a person and not just as mom, right? Like, I mean, this, this is a big point in any human being's life, right? Is when you figure out that your parents are actually people. (laughs) Right. Right. Which even, you know, we don't. Even when we do, we don't. Even when we figure out they're people, it can be really hard to realistically consider what your mom's life at 8, 10, 12, 23 was actually like. And that she had uh, all of these choices that were independent of your life. Did it make it easier in some ways to be able to keep everyone, though, on the farm because one of the girls does actually want to stay she is going to stay and she is going to run this thing with her guy and it's it's really wonderful to see because five generations of this family have run this farm which is getting more and more rare i think i don't really know that much about small farmers but it seems like it's getting harder to do that it it is like a drug though i mean you Mm -hmm. if you're if you grow up on a farm you come back to the farm. You really yeah. do. But you've got these three girls, one of whom now, Laura keeps thinking, well, this one's more like me than any of the others. But I'm not sure I buy into that, by the way. As, yeah. as a reader, I'm not entirely sold on the idea that Laura, uh, Laura's right about her daughters 
Well, no, of course not. The daughters but, aren't going to be right about the mother. The mother's not going to be right about the daughter. Okay. But how much fun is it for you, though, as you're writing all of this and letting it unfurl? I just, I felt a really, even though there are moments where you are talking about grief and the difficult stuff and and figuring it all out, there's a sense of play in this book that mm-hmm. is a little different from there are moments in Commonwealth where there's a lot of play. There are, you know, Dutch House has moments. But pretty, cons- like, I really sort of felt like you as the writer were flying through this book as well. It worked from jump. But am I right about that? Yes. It. What's interesting is when I was writing the book, I was thinking, this is a happy book. Like, I want to write a happy book. It, it, that was absolutely my goal. And it wasn't until maybe i listened to the whole audiobook that i thought oh god this is actually really sad okay. i mean both okay. things both things are true i mean yes. this is a book about climate change and the pandemic and a woman's right to choice and i mean there are just all sorts of of very racism there there are all sorts of very tough things in here. It's also about loving loving the people you love and sticking with them. I felt wildly grounded with this family. And voice is always a thing that I gravitate towards first with a novel and and just sitting so tightly with this family and sort of even when they're bickering. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I I just, you know, movie nights and all of that. And it's actually dad who sort of kicks off the action unknowingly with a with a comment that he thinks is kind of sort of offhanded. And then the children are looking at dad and mom in a whole new light. Yeah. But I want to come to something that dad says, Joe says, he's like, you know, I've had two lives. He had he had an entire life and a different career before he came back to work the farm and, and actually his parents were not the original owners. It was his aunt and uncle, but he was like, yeah, yeah, we're we're going to do this. And he's very comfortable with the idea that he had this thing that he did that he no longer does. And now he has the farm. And I'm wondering if Laura knows, if she's as comfortable with the idea that she's had two lives as he is. Oh, I think she is. If the question is, is she as comfortable with the fact that she is not an actress? Okay. Because I think that she really looks back on all of that and thinks it was fun. It was repellent. It was something that was great for your 20. It is It is Duke. You know, it, it was really um, a fun, hot mess for my 20s and nothing I would want any part of now. I do believe Laura has no regrets. Yeah, I mean... It was interesting. One of my notes to myself in my galley is that she has no real sense of nostalgia. And I think that could have been a sticky moment for the character and maybe even you for the, you as the writer, because nostalgia can be not always a very good thing. And she's remarkably, I think, clear-eyed about, well, I did this thing. I had a really good time. I did a lot of stuff that uh, maybe I don't need my daughters to know. Right, right. <laughs> But that lack of nostalgia was immensely refreshing because I just, I wasn't sure at first. I was like, okay, I'll follow you. I'll see where this is going. But was that 
deliberate. There's something you do at the end where I was so pleased as the reader that that is a piece of it that you dropped in. And it was just such a great touch. But even then, there is, she's just very clear eyed about the world. You know, I think that's me. Okay. Uh, I am not nostalgic. I had some great times. I did some wild and inappropriate things in my life. <laughs> and and am I glad that I did them? I, not particularly. I mean, I just don't think about it, really. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah. I'm somebody who who goes forward. And I guess, you know, I'm glad insofar as the past made the present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't ever look back and think, oh, boy, you know, what if? Never, never. What if I have a I have a friend who used to talk a lot about um, an old boyfriend, very, very happily married friend. But she was she would always, you know, in a private moment, be like, "Oh, I wonder, I wonder what it would have been like if it had been that guy instead of this." <laughs> no, no, I have none of that. I have none of that at all. Yeah, I am not at all like that either. And honestly, I think your 20s are just for, you know, doing a lot of stuff and getting out of your system. (laughs) And you get it out of your system and then the runway is a lot easier and a little bit longer. Exactly. (laughs) how I think about it. Yeah. But yeah, there's so many people, though, who seem to me when they think of all of the bits that go into memory, right? Like who remembers what? Like I can talk to my brother and he'll remember something entirely differently. Then I will. And I'm like, dude, we were raised by the same people. No, me and my sister as well. You know, it's it's wild when you sit down and he'll look at me and be like, you don't remember that. I I got nothing. I call (laughs) my I call my sister my external hard drive. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. That's really excellent. But watching the girls puzzle it out. They're a little more active in their trying to assemble the story, whereas you know, mom's just kind of holding her cards close. And that balance, though, how do you get, and I get it, this is your job, this is what you do, you create these amazing worlds that we get to sit with. But in terms of the craft piece for a second, you've got to balance all of these different pieces and these different voices and not give anyone short shrift. And I think that's the thing that I always appreciate. And you've said this before, like you don't write villains, right? You don't write villains. You're you're writing deliberately writing a happy book. And we meet some wild Summerstock folks. And then, of course, Duke, who we've alluded to. I mean, there's a lot in this. But how do you give everyone their turn, as it were? Is it always just in service of keeping the narrative moving forward? Or is it, I'm going to hang out here for a minute with this person? It's an interest in all of the people. It's it is about balance. I remember when I wrote Belcanto, there were so many people in that book. And I had a sheet by my desk and I actually would go down the list of names every now and then and think, okay, has that person rotated through recently? Has that person come through recently? Commonwealth, another one. So many people, and it becomes a skill. It becomes a, a part of your muscle. And 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 then you know, I get to a point where I don't think about it anymore. I just know how to do it. 
there's not a conscious choice. I am struck often when I read, especially first novels, second novels, it's a single parent with one child. Uh, it, it's, it's so often that the family is tiny. The world mm-hmm. is tiny. Yeah. There aren't friends coming over. And I, I find my own life is very heavily peopled. And I think that most people's lives are. But a lot of novelists don't know how to, to do right. that. Right. And it's, it's just a skill. And I, like everything else, I think that once you learn how to do it, you're not doing it consciously anymore. Can we go to packaging for just a second? Because I was thinking about this as I was reading. I remember when I got the galley for Tom Lake too, and I was like, oh, this jacket. And famously, you commissioned the portrait of Maeve that is the jacket for the Dutch house and local. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great painting. It really, it's a terrific piece. Like, of art. It's, it's downstairs in my den. I love that. And These Precious Days features a piece of art by a friend of yours who painted your dog Sparky. And it's, it's also great. downstairs, yeah. And super dynamic and wonderful. But the jacket for Tom Lake, is that an original as well? Is that, no. how did that? No. A year ago last May, so May of 22, mm-hmm. my husband and I were in Paris. I was giving a talk at the American Library in Paris, went to the Angerie and turned a corner and saw that painting. I was in the middle of writing Tom Lake, wow. okay. straight in the middle. The painting is huge. It's a, it's a decorative panel. They're, they're, it's a multiple section panel. It's probably, I don't know, like 15 feet high, 18 feet wide. I mean, it's a right. wall. It's huge. And I turned the corner and I looked at it and I said to my husband, that's the cover of my next book. There it is. Let's go to the gift shop and get some postcards. And then actually went back and wrote the daisies in to the to the book so that it would work. I just knew it. And the the blank space where the title and my name is, that was inverted. So that was at the bottom. And when they when they showed me the jacket, I was like, no, 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 flip it. I want that at the bottom. And they said, it doesn't work because certain bookstores have have lips on their shelving and it would it would cut off your name. And I said, okay. So they flipped it back. Um, but I think that a, a lot of people that I know have read it and they were like, I was really surprised there weren't cherry trees on the cover. And then I got to the end and then I understood why you did that. But I am, I am somebody who takes full responsibility for every single aspect of my publishing career. And uh, part of that is the cover. And in the end, what I love so much about the cover of the Dutch house is the cover is part of the novel. Yeah. So when you're reading along and you get to the point where Maeve is having her portrait painting, and then you just think, oh my God, that's the painting. That's mm-hmm. the painting they left in the house. Look, there it is. That There's so much pleasure in that. And also in these precious days, oh, Sookie painted that painting that puts a whole other level to it. And for me, this 18th century French painting by Gustave Calabat was the same. You know, actually, it never even occurred to me. And I've I've now read the book twice. And Cherry Trees, actually, I think I was so pleased with what the jacket looked like. It never occurred to me that somehow, because also, I mean, you talk about this with the pear trees being terrible and horrifying and there are no leaves on them. 
And having grown up around apple trees far and wide for, yeah, trees can be freaky looking things when there aren't any leaves. And this just, this jacket fits. It just, it fits everything about this book. And, um, you know, when you're a bookseller, you think about this stuff, right? Like you think about this. I love this line that you have about writing the book that you didn't see. And it's yeah. like, why not? Step, not a, Okay. Yes, Emma Straub is also a bookseller. Like, you know, you're you're not alone in this. No. But at the same time, I love the idea. Not that you're responding to the marketplace, but you're responding to the world as a reader and saying, well, what would I like to see? Yes, absolutely. And also, I think about when I was a graduate student, I went to Iowa when I was 21. And I'm 51. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But the marketplace which is another way of saying the reader yeah. you know, was just <laughs> the last thing that you would think about. Didn't right. matter. You're making art. You know, yeah. you would never sell out. You would never write something that was warm or in any way accessible or, and having a bookstore and seeing people coming in, they want to read. Yep. They really, really want a book. And, and I have, I have such an appreciation for that. It is possible to do both things. It is mm -hmm. possible to make art, to deliver a great book, and also have it be something that people want to walk out with. I, I've i got to take a second to, to talk about mm -hmm. Demon Copperhead. Yes, please. Uh, I love that book. <laughs> you know, and God bless Barbara Kingsolver. Mm -hmm. Because she took something that is impossibly hard. She took like all of the problems of our country mm -hmm. and she found a way to make it into the most gripping narrative, a, a book that no one can put down mm -hmm. and also can deliver some hope. Yeah. I mean, I, and I read so many novels that I just think you're brilliant, but you are punching me in the face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so a book that is willing to tackle some of the big things that that must be tackled. You you know you don't want to be naive, but at the same time, give the reader an experience of being swept up in a book. Did you did you by any chance read such kindness? Andre Debuse came out a couple months ago. I started it. It's still ongoing. I love his voice. Townie is a book oh. that is near and dear, you know, we, <laughs> kids roaming the streets like packs of dogs. I mean, Townie is one of those books, but Andre is one of those dudes with a really big heart and yes. it shows when he's talking about his characters and he's talking about his world. Yeah. He's got it going on. And I also quite liked his dad's work too. <laughs> oh, I loved his dad's work too. But you know, the such kindness mm -hmm. and Townie is my favorite. Mm -hmm. Such Kindness is a book that, again, I just think hats off to you yeah. because you are delivering a really tough story mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. way that I cannot put the book down and I'm cheering for everybody and you're you're giving me hope and that's what we need. I mean, I'd love to see art that I love to see art that reflects where we are, you know, as a world, um, as a society, as a culture, however you want to define us. It is tricky sometimes because you've got to be able to step out of yourself too. You know, every reader is going to bring their own experience, right, to something. And 
I think heart is underrated. I think, you know, you've essentially said this, but why not have a little swing? Why not have a little soul? Like, why not have a good time? I do also believe that there's a book for every reader. So, you know, absolutely. You were going to find your thing. I'm just always really shocked when people say, well, I don't like to read. And I'm like, well, you haven't met the book yet. That's you haven't, no one, you know, thinking back to our town, like, yes, I was one of those kids who, you know, Steinbeck was not ruined for me. And I had years ago an experience with Faulkner where a title was chosen simply because there were no cliff notes. And I'm like, well, that's kind of not the point. And also I didn't use cliff notes, but anyway, but picking like a minor bad Faulkner, which there are minor bad Faulkners. I'm sorry, Faulkner people. And minor bad Steinbecks too. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, you know, and yet here I am sitting in the studio surrounded by really wildly wonderful books, some of which I never could have imagined. Yeah. And just you know, uh, step out of it for a second, you know? Yeah. I I love finding the books that I call gateway drugs. Mm-hmm. It's why I worship Dave Pilkey and Jeff Kinney. Yes. For yes, writing yes, Captain yes. Underpants and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. You know, so mm-hmm. when somebody says my kid doesn't read, well, you know what? They'll they'll yeah. read Dog Man. Mm-hmm. They will. And and then if you read a book, if you have that positive experience, you can go on. There's a book coming out next week that I adore, Heaven and Earth Grocery by James James McBride, McBride. (laughs) who just gets better and better and better. But his book, The Color of Water, Mm -hmm. that is a book you can give to someone who has never read a book. And Without you a doubt. give that book to somebody who has their PhD in literature, mm-hmm. and they will both thank you with tears in their eyes. That's a book that if you say, I don't read, I'm not interested in reading. I'm like, okay, let me give you Dear Sugar. Let right. me give you The Color of Water. You're going to read. We're talking about voice. We're really talking about voice. And yeah. when I talk about Commonwealth and the Dutch House and certainly Tom Lake, I'm talking about voice. And again, it's not necessarily just because Dutch House and Tom Lake are really intimate, partially because of the first person, but voice, like I know when I'm sitting with you and you've written a lot of different kinds of books, but when I think of the last sort of three, I'm taking out the essay collection for a second, even though these precious days popped up. When I look at the last three novels, they sort of sit as a mental box set for me. just in where you are with memory and family and just playing with some stuff that I previously would not have expected just because, I mean, if we look at the scope of say Belcanto or state of wonder, what do you think is next? I mean, is this sort of the lane you want to hang out with for a bit or have you just not started thinking about the next thing? You know, it's what's so, it's so interesting to me that you say this because I've written nine novels mm-hmm. And to me, they hang in groups of three. Oh, wow. Okay. My so, first three, my middle yep. three, my last three, they are they are such a set to me. And so I do think whatever is next will be the first of the next three. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see if I can pull it off. Other writers, though, I mean, you've, Zadie Smith sort of helped you find your way into the Dutch house. Yes. Barbara King Solver and Jane yes. Hamilton helped you get out of some. I feel like I'm leaving someone out of the Dutch. There, there are so many people. But but you have all of these sort of influences. And, yeah. and I love the idea that you can just pick up the phone and hash out a plot point if you feel like it with yeah. some of my favorite writers. But Tom Lake is dedicated to Kate DiCamillo. 
yeah. which I find lovely. And it does tie back into what you were just saying about Dave and and um, Jeff Kinney and whatnot. But can we talk about Kate for a second? I wish we would. I'd like to talk Kate, about Kate else. is a gateway drug also for a lot she of is. folks. And I just she does some very cool stuff on the page. Yeah, she does. And and also, I really sold so much Katie Camillo during the pandemic. When people were saying, I don't have any concentration, I just cannot get into a novel. And I say, read the magical, the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane, read The Magician's Elephant. These are novels, and you can read them in an hour and a half, grown-ups, and they are completely satisfying, and the arc is full. And, And so sometimes... You know, when you don't have the bandwidth to take Zadie Smith on, right. you can read Katie Camillo and you're still in the game. You're still interacting with literature. And the fact that she runs from picture books, a piglet called Mercy, Mercy Watson's, the Dekawoo Drives, into the novels. And because we are really, really close and she writes every day and mm-hmm. she writes all over the place. She works on a fairy tale. She works on a novel. She works on an early reader. She goes back and forth and around, always, always sort of like building the foundations of society. That's that's what I really feel. And I feel that for a lot of children's writers, it's the it is really the thing that I never understood before I owned a bookstore. The importance of children's literature. I don't have children. I wasn't much of a child. I didn't read a lot of kids' books. But to see that every single thing rests on those planks Mm -hmm. and those people who are better people. I mean, I'm just blanket statement that children's book writers, they are better people than the adult writers. The illustrators, they're better. They're like, you know how you can say firemen? They're just better and that's how I feel about the whole children's book world. Yeah, I remember discovering that E.B. White had things for adults. Mm. And my head exploded. <laughs> my head absolutely exploded. Like my copies of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web. I was less a trumpet of the swan person. But I, I'm with my you. copies of I physically fell apart before I could pass them off to my little brother. Like we had to go get new copies because I had just read them and reread I'm, them and reread I am them. Right with you. Apart. Yeah. And discovering that there were essays. I yeah. think I was probably like 12 or 13. And I just, yeah. I, I was so excited. And just finding all of those voices, right? Like the first time you read Baldwin or Morrison or Maxine Hong Kingston, and just all of these voices that you had no idea existed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was wild. So can I ask what else you've been reading? I mean, you and I probably read on a similar clip. It's part of being a bookseller. But uh, at the same time, I'm wondering what you've been really excited about for the summer. So right this minute, I'm halfway through Colson Whitehead, mm-hmm. Brooke Manifesto. So good. So good. And so good. from the minute I finished Harlem Shuffle, I've been waiting for this book. I interviewed him last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I said, you know, when did you start writing Crook Manifesto? And he was like the day after I turned in Harlem Shuffle. And now he's halfway through the third one, if not more than halfway through. 
Okay. Well, I think Ray Carney is one of the great, great characters Absolutely. in modern literature. I just think he is, I am so wild for that character. And it's funny, when you were talking about Commonwealth being the novel you thought you should have written at 25, Coulson did a similar thing with Sag Harbor. And that was his fourth novel. And he was yeah. like, well, I guess I'm going to write this book now. <laughs> yeah. And and yet the intuitionist is in one some ways the one I'll never get over. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, Absolutely. Okay. This book. This book. Okay. All right. Do tell. Do okay. tell by Lindsay Lynch. So Lindsay is the buyer at Parnassus. My gosh, ah. isn't this interesting? This red, it makes my skin look green. Look at this. <laughs> it looks like a Martian. Ah, this is why yeah. book jackets matter, my friends. <laughs> and actually, that is a great jacket, great, though. it is a great jacket. Great jacket. Um, so Lindsay came to work for us right out of college mm-hmm. and went away, went to graduate school, came back, has been working on this novel. And it is like the bookstore has collectively given birth yeah. to a novel. And it came out last week and we're so excited. And That's it's excellent. it's a kind of a historical mystery thriller about the golden age of Hollywood. It's a great rip and summer read. Oh, perfect. And, perfect. and it's been so poignant. We're doing part of book tour together. I'm taking her with me on on part of my book tour, and we've done some events together. But, oh, my God, it reminds me, almost in an R-Town kind of way, of what it was like to be a first-time novelist and and to not know where you're going and to, to realize that, like, the sea can cover you up so quickly. So... You know, I, I want to say just like as a public service, people go buy a copy of Do Tell and help out. One, it's a terrific book and you'll really enjoy it. But two, mm-hmm. this is a first time novelist who worked so hard and I'm so proud of her. So there's that. awesome. Um, okay. Now I want to tell you what I think is going to win the Pulitzer this year. Okay. Do you know? Do you have any? I, you know, right now I'm feeling like I have some ideas, but I'm not sold on anything yet. So I'm curious to see. I'd love to know what your ideas were. Uh, Well, Uh, (laughs) Alice McDermott, Absolution. Yeah. November. Yeah, I can see that. I can absolutely. Yeah, actually that I can absolutely say because I was feeling a little sort of like, where are we? And, and not feeling like. I had the obvious, but now that you say that, I I flew through that in about a minute. <laughs> I mean, she that blew me away. And I've read all of her books mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and loved them. Mm-hmm. And this is like, you know, to the power of 10. Yeah. yeah. It is it is unbelievable. Without a doubt. Without a so, doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still looking at everything. The bookers are coming up and National Book Award, all of this. And I'm Sometimes you know right off the bat, and sometimes you think, hmm. I read I read Demon Copperhead, you know, in yeah, manuscript. That, yeah. And just said, Oh well, you know, let's all just go home. We know we know how this is gonna go. And the voice in that book. Unbelievable. The voice in that book is so spectacular. And I mean, Barbara Kingsolver is pretty spectacular to start with, but that right. but again, very, very, very similar to the situation with Alice McDermott. Mm-hmm. Where you just think, you're the best. Oh, wait, no, you're so much better than that. And I felt that way about Night Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's Louise doing the Without best, a doubt. The best, the best, the best. She's the best. And then here comes that book and it's just like, oh, I had no yeah. idea that the best could get that much better. 
And I realized this was going to happen. We're bumping up on time. But before I let you go, can I can I give you two books that I'm hoping that maybe you will have some time for? Well, actually three. Sure. So there's Loot by Tanya James, 17th century caper flick. And if you're loving Crook Manifesto, oh, oh, oh. Loot might be right up your alley. Really good stuff. Do you know Sarah Hinckley? I do. Um, We've yeah. known each other a million years yep. and I adore her. She is the person who told me about Loot. And if I you have a chance. Okay. You will, I promise you will fly through it. You know what? And I'm going on book tour. And so that would be, that would be great. And then talking about books with big hearts and big ideas at the same time, Small Worlds by Caleb Azuma Nelson. He was a five under 35 for open water, but this book, and it's tiny and it's tight and it's London and it's, oof, it is summertime. And she, and Caleb does something at the end of this book that you, of all people, all readers will appreciate. He he tells a parental story in a way. I'm not giving anything up, but okay. he, when you, when you get to this piece of the book, your eyes will get very big. I promise. Mm-hmm. And then there's also Temple Folk by Aliyah Bilal. She's the short story writer who taught herself how to write by reading and rereading Edward P. Jones. And I have to tell you, this this story collection delivers. Oh, it delivers. It is so good. Um, and speaking of Ian Lee's oh Wednesday's yes child. yes Wednesday's Child fabulous I I have again that some someone I have read from the get go and deeply love uh, you know I'm my problem and I imagine this is your problem as well is once something is published it's kind of dead to me. Uh- there is a little bit of how do I, and also when you're reading at a very fast clip, yeah. sometimes you don't necessarily get to finish. That's also something that there is and, that. There are times where I feel guilty about it, and there are times where I frankly do not. Absolutely. <laughs> Somebody was telling me the other day uh, that they loved the new Richard Ford, and I had tried so hard to get a galley of that book, never got one. Never got one. Asked and asked. Never got one. The book right. came out. I was like, dead to me. <laughs> I'm never going to have the time. Okay. Have you gotten a copy of James by Percival Everett? Yes. And I next, uh, oh, cannot next wait. March. Cannot wait. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for that book. I've been reading Percival Everett for more than a minute. I will say that. And just the idea that, yeah. that his brain his brain and his talent and this book, I, yeah, I cannot, you know, wait. and again, uh, talk about early predictions. Yeah. That's my prediction for 2024. It absolutely, uh, it, it rewired me. Yeah. 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 It yeah. is an, it is a book for our moment. And honestly, I think you're right. I think you're right about the deal server. Right. Right. I've got that. That's, that's my money. Alice McDermott in 23. Percival Everett in 24. And both of those sound really good. Yeah. Actually, uh, you know what? I may just stop. I may just stop fretting about it because sometimes I fret about prizes. Sometimes I fret. You know, a lot of times I'm right about these things yeah. and I, I've just gotten in the habit of, I'm going to go ahead and say it because yeah. if if they hit, it just makes me look smart. There are years that I'm right and there are years that I'm so spectacularly wrong. I'm just kind of like, eh. but. This year I was fretting, and now I'm not fretting anymore. Ann Patchett, thank you so much, not just for the Pulitzer predictions, but really Tom Lake is fun. It is. This is a beautiful, gorgeous, sublime. I cannot wait for readers to get their hands on it, so thank you. 
Thank you. It was, this was a great, great interview. And you know what? They're not all great. So I really appreciate the time and energy you put into this. Thank you. It was a blast talking to you. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over. And I've been so looking forward to this conversation because not many novels start with a main character, well, getting hit by a bus. Straight up. I mean, Jim and Han, I'm going to ask you to set this up a little bit. And you and I have agreed. We are going spoiler free in this conversation, obviously, because there's so much great stuff that happens in your new novel, The Apology. You made a very definite choice (laughs) when you opened this book. And uh, I'm going to ask you to set it up for listeners, please. Yes. And can I just blame my editor for that or credit my (laughs) editor for that? Because um, Vivian Lee is... Mm -hmm. Tremendous. Yeah, she's and, great. And I can say she takes the credit for that. Yeah, the, the book opens very firmly letting you know that this is a book about a big event. Jonga is in Chicago and she gets hit by a bus. Mm-hmm. And so now she's got all these goals. How is she going to still achieve them? See, spoiler free. Um, but how is she going to keep going? She's 105. And we know that right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And she's come from Korea. She's come all the way from Korea to Chicago. She has a reason for doing so. She gets hit by a bus. So you've written a tragic comic family saga that's also, quite frankly, partially a ghost story. Yes. <laughs> This book is wild. This novel is wild. You do so many things extremely well in the apology. And I just, I love these women. I mean, we meet Jonga's sisters who are 108 and 110. What are they? What's the age difference again? I know one of them. They're all like two years apart. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, the ladies have lived Mm -hmm. and the ladies have some very definite opinions which they share with us. And they are very fun. They don't mean to be funny, but wow, they're funny. Well, I'm so glad you got that. Oh, they are so funny. They are, these women, these women are so, they're wild. And Jonga, especially, she has lots of opinions about lots of things and she's not afraid to share them. It's a very tight cast, all things considered. It is really keeping within this one family. But did you start with an idea or did you start with character? Because, I mean, mm. a lot happens. I started with a feeling. There's a lot of, um, it really started with missing because Junga is missing her older sister. There's four of them and she's a baby. I find I've got two girls, two daughters. The youngest ones, they have, you know, they've seen the older ones grow up. They've taken notes and <laughs> they have a little bit of an, of an attitude. And so Junga is the youngest of the four and she's missing the sister that she's closest to. So I started with that feeling of missing and wondering where someone you love might be. And that and that sort of the apology kind of grew out of that. Yeah, I get that. I do. I mean, siblings, yeah, there's some great novels about siblings. And the way you talk about these women, sorry, I'm just smiling thinking about these women because they're <laughs> they have no idea how funny they are. They have no idea. And that is That's part of the pleasure Mm. of reading the book. But so we start in the States, we go to Korea for a bit, we come back to the States. 
And for you, though, I mean, and I know you worked very closely with your editor on a lot of the structure of the book and everything else. But when you sat down, right, you've got these voices, you've got this feeling, you've got these women, the whole cast Mm -hmm. is coming together. The structure, though, it kind of keeps you a little off balance, basically. It's like, okay, where am I now? Where are we going? Okay, this is interesting. So how much of the apology is about the structure and the setting as it is about Jonga and her sisters? You know, there's this feeling of missing and then there is what she wants. And a lot of writers will talk about that, right? Like, how is she going to go get what she wants? And, (laughs) you know, she's kind of happy where she is. And that's been her thing about not going anywhere and staying in her comfort zone. So take sending her off to to the States is part of making her uncomfortable. And I'm sure you've heard this with other writers talking about, like, this is what you do. You torture your characters. You send them off. And you try to see how they're going to respond under pressure. Yeah, her sisters have a rougher time of it, I think, than she does. I mean, I do. I felt her sister, Era, has a bit of a nervous stomach, and it doesn't seem like she has a very good time on this trip in any way, shape, or form. But watching these women sort of navigate the U.S., thinking that they know all of the things they need to know, and they have assistant helper friend, surrogate daughter. Chohi is just, she's a lot of different roles in one for Janga. And so we've got these three older women and Chohi who's kind of like clearly fond of Janga. She spent most of her life with this woman, but also ready to like have a life of her own. And so there's that conflict. You've got the siblings. I'm laughing through this entire thing. (laughs) Because you're not really, I don't know, are you actually torturing them or are you just saying you don't know as much as you think you do. I don't know if that's yeah. actually torture. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I guess the thing is to think about, I think a lot of times we might protect our characters, we love them, and to think about, you know, really letting them try to get what they want in spite of themselves. And the sisters, Janga doesn't want her sisters to go with her, right? So, <laughs> but they're nosy and they, they got to go. If ever there was a set of siblings in fiction, it would be these women. I, oh. These women are just, you can just see them sort of picking at each other going, well, wait, this is what I want to do. What's wrong with you? But you start with the feeling you've got this cast. I'm assuming Janga showed up sort of first out of the women, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. You've got the feeling, you've got her, you've got the setting. And then you do this thing, this high wire act that I really appreciate where you, I mean, yes, obviously I'm talking about how funny this book is, but you're also talking about grief and loss and loneliness and isolation. I mean, Janga has isolated herself in many ways, just from the decisions she's made. She's one of these people who's like, well, my family's reputation is everything. And therefore I must, you know, carry the flag for the family. Mm -hmm. And those decisions have not served her well, to be polite. Right. Does that all come from that feeling? I mean, let's map this out for a second because mm-hmm. you cover a lot of ground and a lot of time. Mm-hmm. How do you put all of these pieces together mm-hmm. and create a comic novel? Because humor's hard. We know mm-hmm. this. Like anyone who reads a lot knows that humor is really hard. And if you write, you know it's even harder. Right. Mm-hmm. So, how do you do it? Well, well, you know, the missing part, she would never tell anybody. 
Okay. So that's her, that's kind of, I'm around a lot of funny people. I don't consider myself to be funny, but what I find is that they really don't like to be vulnerable, but they need to be vulnerable. But then they, they're able to, they, they are so sharp about that vulnerability. That's what makes them funny. And I, I just, I, I think with Jonah, that missing part is the part that she hides. Yeah. And then she's going to go forth and try to still fix things because there's a lot of love there. But it's a it's a shield, you know, her, yeah. her kind of toughness. Yeah, that inscrutable thing, right, that gets ascribed to Asian Americans. Right. Inscrutable? I'm sorry. I don't even know what that means. She tries. She just tries to keep it all locked away. And she tries to rationalize everything. Right. I mean, in some ways, she's still, even though she's 105, she's still kind of emotionally very young. Yes. And I do have to give her a little bit of sympathy for that because, I mean, she doesn't really know that she's a little emotionally. She doesn't know. She doesn't know she's a little emotionally stunted. She really does think Mm -hmm. she's figured everything out. Yeah, yeah. So how do you make her, he- I mean, it would be really easy to turn her into a caricature, though. How do you keep the funny? How do you keep the narrative moving? And how do you not turn your main character into a clown? That's a great question. I, I think in some drafts, um, I got notes. I got notes oh, okay. from my kids. I got notes from people who said, you know, we need we need to see Choi push back more. Yeah. We need to see Jung-up push back more. We need okay. to see among the sisters some differences. Yeah. And that was really that was really fun for me because I know sometimes you can be so wrapped up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the internal world of a character. And um, so it was fun to just let, like, have more conversations, have more mm-hmm. scenes where she's bumping up against people. Do you have a favorite piece of the apology that is spoiler-free that we can talk about? I really had a lot of fun, and it, it actually took the most work to write about the psychic. Oh, yes. Okay. Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> I was all prepared. I'd done a lot of research. I was prepared to the the Korean shaman part of it in Korea. And yet here she was in the United States, and I had to to put her in a room with an American shaman. Right? Oh, it really worked though. It really, it, it worked so well. And, and just some of the choices you made with dialogue and some of the choices you made just with <laughs> everyone's frustration. Let's put it that way. Everyone in the room yeah. is frustrated and not getting what they're looking for. And, you know, again, grief is so messy, right? Like, Grief isn't something you manage, right? Like, you don't make a bunch of lists and go, okay, I'm good now, thanks. You know, it comes, it goes. You never quite know what shape it's going to be. And I just, I feel like that just sort of flowed through the apology, Mm -hmm. that feeling of grief. And I'm wondering, when did you start writing the apology? When did you start really thinking about this book? I mean... Mm -hmm. There's a lot happening here. That's another great question. I've always had these fragments. I've had fragments of someone like Jenga missing someone else. Um, There's a lot of missing in my family. I've sort of grown up hearing stories. Like I was always told that I look like my father's mother, who he didn't see after he was 15. So there was that. Um, And then during lockdown, 
um, a few things happened that made me just have a lot more time to sit at my desk and think about all these different pieces. My mom had died in 2016. So um, she was on my mind, still is. And so um, a lot of this is about her and her. And she's very different from the sisters, she and her sisters, but she was also one of four. She's the second sister. She would be like Anna, but between her and her youngest sister, she's very close to, they lost a sister to smallpox. Oh, okay. This was really a chance for me to sort of escape what we were mm-hmm. all going through with yeah. lockdown and these pandemic novels and, um, and, and just be with my mom and kind of think about what she would think about people like this. Right. Yeah. And I bet she would have had a blast because really I, yeah, these women. How much time have you spent in Korea? Because you've been in the States since you were tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah, since I was four. Okay. Yeah, so not, I haven't spent a lot of time, but um, mm-hmm. when she died, she was living in Korea at the time. Oh, we went okay. to visit her just before she died, and then I went back right. to the funeral. So recent Korea was on my mind for sure, yeah. I mean, it's such a trip. I used to go back to Japan and also Taiwan when I was small. So there were many, many sort of summers of, oh, hi, right, switching gears. <laughs> right. Switching gears, right, okay. Just, you know, you know, the rules of engagement change and you're kind of like, <laughs> your eyes get really big. And you're like, well, at least there are really delicious things to eat. Yes. Um, because that's that navigating that space. And I'm, I'm also saying this in the spirit of, I do really like my family overseas, but it, there is a cultural shift that happens and your characters certainly embody this. And we're leaving out the American branches mm-hmm. of this one particular family because, you know, we like to stay spoiler free in this conversation, but also, you know, yeah. it gives us a chance to sort of <laughs> limb the space around being Asian American and in this case, specifically being Korean American, because you have a couple of characters who are like, well, so-and-so became less Korean when they moved to America. Mm -hmm. And this idea that you become less of something, which to a certain extent, sure. I mean, culturally things shift and whatnot, but it's just so plain spoken. (laughs) And the ladies are just like, yeah, so-and-so, less Korean, less Korean, less Korean. And I'm wondering how you navigate that space as an American who's also Korean. You know, it's funny because when, when I'm in Korea, I, I feel like they give me more space. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of being Korean is clearly more complex than the ways in which we might be put into boxes here, okay. what Korean is. And okay. you know, there's so, you know, there's so many things to consider. There's, you know, class and region and all kinds of things. So, and gender, there's, there's so much. And I Mm -hmm. find it so interesting to be in Korea and they don't have expectations of me because they're like, you didn't grow up here. So they're they're a little more, um, I wish when I'd grown up that I had been around a larger Korean community. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was in Jamestown, which is Southwestern New York, but we did have Lilydale, which is that psychic center. We had Chautauqua, which I think really hit the news because yeah. of what happened, sadly, to Salman Rushdie last summer. But in this little part of southwestern New York, we had the arts every yeah. summer. So, right. Yeah. I think, you know, it helps, but I don't want to discount being mm-hmm. first and only in a lot of spaces. And you really were. And I do think there are ways to use that to build bridges and be connected in a different way. Like you just said, you had the arts and everything else. 
but there are also times where it gets a little old really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why it's taken me so long. Uh-huh. It's taken me so long to step into a space where I feel, you know, with, with my first novel, I mean, that, that right. took so many years. I mean, I'm 57 and this second novel is coming out. And I just think that it was just really hard to claim it. I, I to claim being a writer, to say yeah. our stories, to feel. I, I'm even still talking to young Korean American writers who ask me, they're like, I got into med school. How can I go write a book? And I still uh, to this day. And I think that all the things that have been happening, you know, around COVID and all the anti-Asian hate stuff, it's it's just emphasized again and again why it's hard to feel safe enough to tell our stories. There's that's yeah, that's absolutely a piece of it. But the flip side of that is if we don't, someone else is gonna do right. it for us. And like that doesn't work either. I I just Yes. I would rather see us take our seats and take up space too. I mean, I think this idea of taking up space and being able mm. to make the leap or take the risk or whatever metaphor you want to use, right, for actually just doing the work and telling the story. I mean, it's so much a part of the Asian American experience, right? Like everyone has been told more than once, like, go back to where you came from. And I, I'm from Boston. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Boston. I'm just gonna like, get a tissue because my no. I mean, now I'm getting emotional. Hold on. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right. We do have to. I mean, we we have to. I just, yeah. And that that's why it's so exciting to me to see all of the books coming out now, and you know, change and to have you know editors like Vivian out there. I mean, we we need everyone to be a part of this. Well, and the idea too, that there are different manifestations, right, of an immigrant story or a ghost story. Like, I don't know Korean mythology the way maybe I know some Japanese or even some mainland Chinese. I don't, you know, but the idea that we all have this sort of notion of an afterlife, and there's overlap, right? There's overlap. And some of the stuff that Jonga goes through (laughs) as people in her past are trying to teach her things. It's a great device. It's a really good device because everyone has that, whether or not you personally believe in an afterlife, right? Mm -hmm. It makes for a great setup in literature. It gives you a chance to play with time and space and place and change and track all of these moments. And, you know, why not more ghost stories, right? Like, why not? Why We can do so much in literature. And, you know, again, that's why we need a plurality of voices, right? Like, there are times where I can read a short story by John Cheever and think, oh, my people. And sometimes I need Maxine Hunt Kingston, or sometimes I need Amy Tan, or, you know, there are a million different, or sometimes I need Marlon James. We just, we find our balance, right? In literature, it just may not be written by someone who necessarily looks like us. And that's part of the fun of the apology, right? Everyone has old people in their lives. Everyone, everyone has the relatives who has have opinions. Right. We've all been at that dinner table. I don't care where you are in the US, everyone. I, I have a beloved aunt who had many opinions about my hair for a very long time. And I was like, really? <laughs> really? We could talk about so many things. And yet my hair 
Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't even know what to do. Even now, I don't really know what to do with that. But again, this idea of what's Korean and what's not, what's American, what's not, like... That's a big part of this book. Well, you know what I loved um, when I, because I asked Vivian, I was like, you know, mm-hmm. um, with a ghost, then does that automatically push my book into a genre? Like I was just nervous. And she said, not at all, because it isn't for you as a Korean person, is it? As a Korean American in the, in, in your, in what you grew up with, was that considered a ghost story? And it, it's not. It's, no, not at all. Yeah. The boundaries are yeah. a little more. <laughs> permeable that way and so it's it's a family it's a family story it's it's not considered such a different world i just had a lot of fun with the your sense of play Mm -hmm. right even though you're dealing with the big stuff your sense of play on the page and you've been teaching writing for a really long time right like yeah so sarah lawrence you got an mfa at sarah lawrence right yeah you've been teaching at sarah lawrence do i have that right Right. There's a, there's a, um, they have what's called the writing Institute. Okay. Which is where I've taught for years and they, um, they allowed me to like design a class. And so I, I was learning a lot about writing and feeling. Yeah. I think I learned a lot about community. That's the best yeah. thing, you know, right. You know, with other writers, my favorite people and, uh, helping them. Wait, so you've been teaching for how long, give or take? Yeah, almost 20 years. Okay, so almost 20 years you've been teaching, and yet you and I just had a piece of a conversation where you said, well, it took me a really long time to claim my seat as a writer. And I'm like, but you've been doing this. I've been doing it. So I'm not, I know there are, there are, there are wonderful writers out there that have done other things and then suddenly write a book and it's not there. I've been working and working. I just, um, I spent a long time. I think my first novel, the idea of it, there was a lot of pressure in my family. Yeah, um, I got it. My my mother gave up being a physician to you know for us to immigrate here, and and and, um, and I always felt that. And it really was when she died that I that I kind of suddenly heard very clearly what a small revolution should be like. Yeah. And that book just came together. And with the abol- apology too, I just feel like now there's an urgency mm-hmm. that I didn't feel before. I think I felt like I had a lot of time. Chung is 105 because she thought she had a ton of time, right? And we all do to a degree. And then suddenly you go, we don't. So I just stopped letting myself get distracted by a million things, helping other writers and just focused more. And also timing. I have to say I needed the right editor. I needed Mm -hmm. to have publishing be a particular way, possibly, you know, like it maybe. I'm just grateful for that because I I can see that what we consider a good story, what we consider Mm -hmm. all these things, they change. I felt a lot of support. I'm very lucky that um, Vivian allowed me to sort of write both these books the way that I saw them. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I know there are some folks who like to stay in their lane, as it were. I mean, Mm. I gravitate towards a certain kind of writing. I mean, I, I care about writing on a sentence level. Like that is a thing that I, I have a rough time when the sentences are not great. Yeah, <laughs> I need great sentences, but that's not to say I can't finish or won't finish. It's just, if I'm given my absolute druthers, I know what I want, you know, I want voice and I want character and I want beautiful sentences. If stuff happens, that's great, but I'm a little less about stuff happening. <laughs> 
you give us both though. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from your students though? I mean, you've been in the classroom for almost 20 years. What did you learn from your students about crafting a novel or just, or maybe even just crafting a story? Let's, let's not say novel per se, because not everyone's writing a novel. Right, right. Well, it wasn't so much. I just, I, what I learned was that there are a lot of things that hold us back. I think interesting. Okay. I think everyone has a story. Okay. I don't think that everyone's the right one to write every story, but I think everyone has a story. And I found that just like raising kids, encouraging them really helped me to encourage myself because I think that I just had certain emotional and psychological issues, hurdles from my own childhood to overcome. And I, I'm just really shy. And I think if I'd had the internet too <laughs> earlier and social media, because I found, I found such great community online. Asian American Writers Workshop. Right. Back in the day, they published my first piece of writing that I was terrified to publish. It was about about domestic abuse, family. And I was like, I cannot, I can't have this published anywhere else. And they took care of it. So that's what I spent a lot of time with my students. We we just went over what their story was, how Mm. they can tell their story. I was writing all along trying to get things published. I, I had other things published, but mm-hmm. it was it was a great way to balance for me, managing my parents, my children. Yeah. Community of writers that I loved, reading, all of it. Yeah. So juggling all of the moving parts at once is what you're saying. All of the moving parts. <laughs> yeah. And and maybe, I mean like we were talking about the apology. It's got a, a, a sense of humor that Mm-hmm. I don't know. It. I love Amy Tan, but maybe it's not. It, there are things about it. I don't know. I think for a lot of readers, there's going to be very mm-hmm. quick recognition, right? Like I just, I think there are some archetypal patterns that are so fun to see. And then you kind of move the parts around a little bit and it's like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> and I like the combination quite a lot because just when I thought you were kind of going to go one way, you went another way. And I never actually wanted to put the book down. Now that said, I did, you know, I have to sleep. I have to do other things at the office. So I do occasionally have to put books down when I am unwilling to put them down, but it feels like a very propulsive story. Mm -hmm. Partially because of the ladies. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) I love these characters so much. Anyone who's been on the receiving end of Asian mom death stare. Mm. They know this. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know what Asian mom death stare is, you have a variation in your family, I promise you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the mom look that will stop you in your tracks. Okay. Mm-hmm. My mother's been dead for a number of years. I can still feel it when she unleashes it. <laughs> it's not often, <laughs> but every now and again, I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the fact that we can laugh about this stuff, though, and the fact that we can laugh about these women as they're finding their feet, and the fact that yeah, these women don't find the same things funny that we do. It must have been a treat for you to write this book, even though, again, you're playing with grief and trauma and history and family and all of the messy things that make us who we are. But the sense of play in this book is really important. It's really, not everyone can do that. It was the only way through. You know, yeah. I, it's one of those like, if you're not going to laugh, then you're crying. Right. And we're not crying. You know, like, 
We are crying. People might think we're a little weird, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's someone out there going, what is going on right now? But yeah, I, you know, you have to have the balance, you know, where there's good, there's bad, where there's things don't exist in a vacuum, right? And like these women don't exist in a vacuum. Janga and Janga has tried to exist in a vacuum and hasn't quite worked out for her. And the, you know, my mom and my aunt and the, the women in my life, they really were what they have in common with Janga is they don't take no for an answer. Yeah. Like yes. you know? have you ever, ever met an Asian lady of a certain age who takes no for an answer? No. <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's not in the factory presets. It just doesn't. And I really, I love my elders. I like my grandmother and my great-grandmother, my mom, my aunts. They're very, very great people, but they're also exactly who they are. Right. <laughs> and they're very focused. <laughs> they're very focused. Yeah. And we're just, you know, we're, I mean, even so, it feels to me, and I'm I'm glad that Jenga doesn't seem to fit a stereotype mm-hmm. of an Asian. Yep. Uh, American woman that there's there's something about her that might make people like her and not like her. I was happy to hear from some people they they're just like today they're bringing her energy with them when they have to like oh, something. Oh, that's a really good idea. That's right? a really she is very stubborn. Yeah, <laughs> she's very stubborn. So that that's made me feel really good because I, I I feel like I was leaning on Jung a bit, you know, in the writing of it and in those kind of days when there was so much uncertainty. It was nice to just, sometimes those blinders, right? They, they help you and they also hurt you. Editors and literary influences, everyone needs those too. So can we talk about some of your literary influences? Because I don't think you only read comic novels. That's, that's part of it. I think there's more to who you are as a writer and a reader. So can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, I, I love I, I love novels about big personalities. I, mm-hmm. That is true. I loved Queen of the Night, Alex oh, Chee. Yeah. And yeah. I love that he wrote such a great blurb um, and referenced Iris yep. Murdoch in terms of those kinds of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. those characters. Like we got Charles Araby, who's just wacky, right? Just And I also love when writers do interesting things. I know you talked to Matt Salesis. Um, I love how every novel's different, how he explores different different ideas. I'm a big fan of Lisa C. I, I loved Peony and Love yep. way back. She had a character die after the first chapter. And I thought that was that was could you do that? You can do that and go on. Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Constantly living and dying. I just thought that is so cool. Who can do that? I really like to see a novel. I think you you spoke to Hernan Diaz, right? For trust. Uh, trust is right. the things he does with voice. Yeah. In that novel, it is it's so satisfying. If you haven't somehow read Trust yet by Hernan Diaz, you need to read Trust. And there's a reason it shares the Pulitzer Prize. That voice, that really sticky voice, and you come out of that first section of the book and you're thinking, huh. Right. And then suddenly you're in that next and yeah, what he does with voice and yes, trust and yes. how you trust a voice is um, it's really satisfying. And what can be I love books that say like, what can be a book, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It couldn't be yeah. I could only be a novel mm-hmm. in terms of those pieces. And of course, you mentioned Maxine Hong Kingston, yep. you know, way back in the day um, that 
you know, woman warrior, that, that we could have these stories that just span all kinds of periods of time and bring it back and, and are just telling, like my mother told me, you know, don't say, don't say this stuff. Um, so powerful. So powerful. Alice Pung has a book coming out. It was oh. published in Australia, but now it's okay. coming out here. Okay. Um, it's called 100 Days. Also super strong voice. I was asked to blurb it because the editor there said an interesting thing. She said it was the opposite of my book. So that really intrigued me. She said, you might want to see this is 100 Days. It's the opposite. It's, it's, it's not actually travel. It's containment. Okay. See, think about the relationship. Adding that to the TBR. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Adding that to the TBR. It's funny. While you were talking too, I was also thinking about Claire Keegan, right? Who writes novellas. And the next book is three stories, but she writes novellas. And, you know, we've been having this conversation in books for a really long time. Like the novella is dead. Well, why does the novella have to be dead? Yeah. Like I actually, I can think of lots of satisfying tiny, tiny books. And it's just like, well, why can't we do, or, you know, this idea that story collections are not having a heyday at the moment. I'm just like, yeah, but we could change that conversation because stories can be really, really terrific. Yes. And this idea that a book can be, you know, what is a book, right? What is a story? Yeah. I mean, remember when Jennifer Egan wrote that um, short story out of a series of tweets? Oh my gosh. Which one? What, which it was one? in the New York, it was in the New Yorker. And then she riffs off of it in Candy House. And then there's that chapter, obviously, in Welcome to the Goon Squad that's written in PowerPoint. And then she does sort of a slack. Mm-hmm. There's a slack and, and the riff off the Twitter short story from the New Yorker is in Candy House. But there's also a chapter that's sort of written as a slack exchange. And it's like, well, actually, that is story. Yes. Not the most satisfying story necessarily, like it, as part of a greater whole, sure. But like, do I want to read an entire collection of stories written in tweets? No, not so much. But the way it happens in the candy house is really, it's, it's very cool. <laughs> it's very, I have it. I have it right here. Look, I even have it, but I have not read it yet. Um, it's worth it. You really, it, that. Okay. I'm but gonna- again, talking about form and how you tell a story and what becomes a book. And, you know, is it stories? Is it a novel? Well, how about yeah. it's a really great reading experience and the characters are awesome and okay. I mean, the things that we can do with language on the page, right? Like watching yeah. Junga struggle with English and it turns out she's always kind of wanted to learn English all along, but never <laughs> quite did it. And yeah, her English is not great. Okay. But she still like she really wants that connection. She wants the words. She wants all of it. To watch her kind of wrestle with that is mm-hmm. something. Aww. And then you get to play with language though, right? Like you're bouncing back and forth, not necessarily between Korean and English per se, but this idea of living in translation, right? Like it's something that a lot of us do you know regardless of where our parents are from and whatnot like translation you kind of sometimes have to translate your own family for yourself right like it's just a thing doesn't matter what your background is it's especially acute though if you do have a parent or parents who may not have english as a first language and i love watching you do that with your characters because you can sort of see you can see the wheels turning (laughs) and there's intent and there's understanding and sometimes the two don't always They don't always come together. But again, this goes back to the sense of play. It goes back to you being able 
to do some stuff, but how do you switch gears? How do you keep it real without sounding contrived? I'm, I think translation and living in translation is a perfect way to describe it. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. I am not always aware of it. Like I, I think for the longest time, and I know other people have said this, so I'm not the first one. For a long time, I thought my mother and I spoke the same language when she was speaking to me in Korean and I was speaking to her in English and it never mm-hmm. even, right? right. Like, I get, no, I totally get that. I totally get that. Even, um, and now in trying to write Jungha in English, you know, it certainly isn't exactly word for mm-hmm. word. Um, it's funny when I watch K-dramas and I see, yeah. I know the word is not the word that they're putting on the subtitle, right? And it's a big thing. Like, yeah, no, I... So somehow finding that space in between. I tried to think of my ideal reader. Like I try to think, as I always do, that my ideal reader is someone who is like me, like my cousin or someone who would understand both worlds. And I hope that that would reach a larger audience because they still have a lot more in common with my cousin and and me. Like hopefully you can still get enough cross. Yeah. yeah, well, the New Englander is saying to the upper, upstate New Yorker, <laughs> like, there's definitely going to be that connection, certainly, but there's a lot of what you and I would sort of take for granted as very American moments and family. Things. It just, you've created this very cross-cultural experience. And part of the fun of reading, at least for me, is finding the details of like my own life mm-hmm accidentally in someone else's story, right? You know, you and I don't have the exact same background. And yet I'm just like, these women, (laughs) the aunties, (laughs) the auntie brigade. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, honestly, some of those auntie brigade are like New Englanders, right? Even though we're talking about Korean women in their hundreds, right? In their centenaries. I know a lot of New England ladies like that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I um, actually lived in Providence. There's a little- Okay, so you know, you know. (laughs) There's, there's a little New England in me, mm-hmm. but you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is cross-cultural. Absolutely. That, that kind of stoicism is something everyone understands. I hope. Yeah. Do you miss these women? Do you miss this world? I do. I do. I, I just think that, um, I love that people talk to me about the book. I mm-hmm. love talking like, here's an opportunity to talk about them. Right. They're out there doing their stuff. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of, they were just with me for a short while. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, um, I feel like that's, that's, that's enough. I, I don't, I don't think there'll be a sequel or anything else, but I, oh yeah, actually I was thinking you were sort of one and done with this, but I yeah. mean, you did live with the book for three years before we got our hands on it. No. And then many years before, I mean, Jung has been circling around. Okay. I have had her sort of there and just didn't know what the story, I didn't know what, what the story would be. Like, what would be the container? For me, it's sort of like that. What's the best way? It's not always a straight line. Yeah. And, um, but it can only be in a book in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Did you set out to do what you pulled off here? Or did you sort of surprise yourself as you were working on this book? Total surprise. I, as I said, I started off with that missing and I think moving along and then taking these turns when she couldn't get what she wanted and finding a way through (laughs) and um, did not know, did not have an ending. And I think this was good though. Meanwhile, like, you know, sometimes 
I mean, I'm certainly one and look at how many years it took me. Sometimes I hold a little too tightly to what I think is going to happen. Right. And we can't know. I think that's been the biggest lesson for me in recent years is somehow after 2016, the planet went off into another, I don't know what happened specifically in my life with my Mm. mother and with our presidential elections and everything Mm. recently, because I know other parts of the world you know, they've been in this climate catastrophe much more yeah. uh, dire than we have in mm-hmm. recent years. We're, we're now joining that club, right? But yeah, totally surprised and really kind of um, stunned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like stunned. Okay, so you told us you've read 100 Days. Mm-hmm. We know who some of your big literary influences are. Mm-hmm. But what's next for you? Have you started thinking about the next thing? Okay, I'm going to mention Hernan Diaz one more time because yeah. <laughs> I tend to talk. I love to talk about what I'm writing and stuff. Yeah. But I went to his talk at PNT Knitwear and I asked him, and you know, he said, I can't. I don't know. Did he say that in your interview? He's like, that would just, nah, I can't. The way I experienced that, I thought, that's, that's a good plan. I better just keep my mouth shut and just totally fair. Right. It's totally fair. I part of why I like asking that question is because everyone has a different response. There's some people who are like, yep, and you know, later you can find the thread of something where I'm like, oh, that started as that. Okay. Yeah. And then there are other people who are just like, mm, thanks, bye. <laughs> and that's fair too. I just, I mean, I can't stop asking too, because it's also sort of a mental Rolodex of, huh. Okay. Because I'm always, I mean, honestly, I'm always thinking about books. I'm always thinking about the show. I'm always thinking about writers. So <laughs> I, I want, I want my, my agent has some, some stuff of mine. Look, we, we've definitely, and Vivian seen it. We, we're definitely talking about it. So I'm excited. Good. I'm really excited. Yeah. All right. That seems like a really good high note to end the show on. And I knew we were going to bump up against time because we always do, but you know, such is. Anyway, Jim and Han, thank you so much for joining us. The apology is out now. And really, it's, oh, this book. This book is a treat. Thank you so much, Mima. This was so fun. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to go along with today's wonderful double shot episode. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and we are going to kick things off with my book buddy from Leewood, Kansas, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Mark. I'm excited today. (laughs) One of the serious perks of being a bookseller is getting to read books early, and you should have been around when I saw that we got to read an advanced copy of Tom Lake. There may have been screaming. I called my sister who dropped everything to gush with me and our spouses just looked at us like we were crazy, but uh, Ann Patchett's that special to me and to all booksellers, I think. So I'm excited today to talk about another book that I really, really love. And I think you would love it too, if you enjoyed Tom Lake as much as I did. Right off the bat though, tonally, these books are not the same. (laughs) Tom Lake is a really a dreamy sort of summer tale. And the book I'm recommending spans nearly an entire century, um, but it is really centered around World War II. So, of course, it's much heavier, but there's a a shared theme there about knowing the truth of our own stories versus both mythologizing and the diminution that happens when children are telling their parents' stories. And so, of course, the writing in both of these novels is spectacular. Uh, This book I'm talking about is a 
a God in Ruins by Kate Atkinson. And I'm going to cause a Kate Atkinson scandal by saying this is my favorite of her books. Um, if you read her fan favorite, uh, fantastic magical realism novel, Life After Life, about the inimitable Ursula Todd, then this is literally a brother to that book. It's about Ursula's brother, the World War II hero that we all adored, Teddy Todd. I really love the back and forth in time narrative that Kate Atkinson uses to kind of control what you know and don't know about her characters. And she takes a really long time to peel back the layers and reveal who they are on the inside. Um, and so their inner lives are always very richly detailed, which for me is, is a treat, something I look forward to as a reader. So Teddy Todd, he's served as a bomber pilot in the RAF, and he's seen obviously some very devastating things, has been placed in these impossible situation. So he goes into the war not expecting to survive it. He sees himself as a person who is probably going to be sacrificed for the war's effort. And when he returns home, it's kind of a surprise and it's very complicated. The adrenaline's gone, the camaraderie is gone, and of course the constant danger is gone. And what replaces it should be this beautiful wife he's made with his wife, Nancy, and his daughter, Viola. And he does make a go of it. But in his daughter's eyes, his war experiences always overshadow her own importance in his life and her own story. And resentment really starts to grow in her. And so when her mother tragically dies, he tries to be a good father, but he just often becomes lost in the memories of his early life which is frustrating for Viola. Teddy has lived a spectacularly rich life. Um, when he was just a boy in the 1920s, his Aunt Izzy wrote a series of famous children's books about him. And it featured a much more raucous and precocious kind of version of Teddy called The Adventures of Augustus. That the Teddy Todd, the sort of golden boy mythologizing begins with those stories. Um, on the outside, he's this charming and gregarious and magnetic person and the people around him in his early life really do start to think of him as godlike. But as we get to know him over the course of his very long life through this rumination, we as readers get to know the real him. He's gracious, he's introspective, he's astute, and we can see the chasm that's growing between his prickly daughter Viola and her father. Um, what she thinks his contribution to the world is and what she values about his story are not at all what is important to him. And these misunderstandings are heartbreaking and infuriating because we know his entire tale inside and out. And we want Viola and his grandchildren and everyone he ever knew to understand him as we the readers do. And I have to leave it there. I can't spoil anything or give anything else away, but I can't recommend it highly enough. It's A God in Ruins by Kate Atkinson. Uh, I wanted I wanted to clap and yell and scream a little bit with that because you are correct. It is, uh, it's so good. It's so good. And such a perfect companion to Life After Life, which is so very different in tone and, and writing style, but it's, it's like a lovely dessert to that meal but stands alone as its own beautiful thing. So nice choice as expected. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I'm recommending for uh, the apology and I was thinking about books with a lot of rich family history, a lot of the way that memory kind of serves and the way that the past and the present can kind of clash or intertwine. And I kept thinking about a book called The Inheritance of Orchidea Divina. Uh, that's by Zoreta Cordova. It was one of our monthly picks uh, a few months back. And it's just this 
fantastic family drama. It is injected with some magical realism. So if you think like Isabel Allende, Garcia Marquez, uh, even Alice Hoffman to a degree, it's really more a story about a family coming to terms with their sort of otherworldly legacy. So our title character, Orchidia, she has lived a very haunted life in a small village in Ecuador. Throughout the novel, we start to uncover all of the pieces of her past and the reasons behind this uh, sort of cursed affliction, as well as why she stayed exactly where she was. We also follow sort of a current time period where four of her grandchildren are coming down to Ecuador to receive their family inheritance from the grandmother. What they get instead is not what they expected and has ramifications and a level of danger and trouble that will affect them all. And it sets them off on a kind of a quest that is filled with mysticism and heart and just a really fantastic family story about how people can be pulled apart, brought back together for various reasons, uh, sometimes by choice, sometimes kicking and screaming. The book is categorized as a fantasy, but like I said, it feels right at home with stories about a rich family history. So you think about Marquez, you think about Allende, you think about Alice Hoffman. I think that this book deserves a place amongst that family. I think that the author's very deft ability to weave fantastical elements into her prose is just astounding and really lovely to read. It's a fantastic book for the summer, and it's one that asks the question of, do you stay bound to your destiny uh, for good or for ill, or do you completely turn your back on it and um, carve a path for yourself? That is The Inheritance of Orchidea Divina by Zoraida Cordova. Please check it out. But guess what? That's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN. Westchester. Jamie, where can we find you? I'm at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.